It's been a good morning already, and I am grateful for our worship team and their leadership this morning. Two men that never want to be in the limelight, I am grateful to God, are in our band. They've just added so much richness to our music this morning, so I'm grateful for Zach and for Alan playing the bass, the, the, the lead electric, and then the bass guitar. Man, aren't they all awesome this morning? What a great demonstration of God's grace to the church. Before we get into the word this morning, I want to introduce you, because we're coming at the end of our church year, moving into a new church year, which will be September 1, and we usually uh, bring before you candidates for elder. And I want to introduce you to three men, uh, you'll see their pictures, them and their wives on the screen, that we will be uh, putting before the church in our members meeting at the end of the month as candidates to join our elder board. And so you'll see there Mark Duffer and his wife, Vicki, they've been a part of our church for a long time. I think uh, Noah was laying in the boat on Mount Ariat when, uh, Vic, when Mark was, uh, I won't say Vicki, but when Mark was joining our church. Uh, you're, you're welcome, sister. Uh, but Mark is a great man, great servant. He served as a deacon here for many, many years. He's a small group leader and just a faithful, wonderful, godly man. Uh, next to them is uh, Adam and Christy Hubble. Adam and Christy joined our church a couple years ago. He's been a small group leader. God's just been really moving in their life and using them in tremendous ways uh, here at our church. He serves on our tech team and, and uh, does a, a great job for us from that standpoint. And then uh, Trevor Colazzo and his wife, Janelle, uh, they joined our church last fall. He serves as our worship administration pastor, and uh, we are excited about these three gentlemen uh, potentially, and Lord willing, joining our elder board and serving alongside the rest of us this year. You know, as our church grows, uh, we need more volunteers. We need more leadership in all facets, and that also includes elders. And so I'm excited about these three men, their wives, and the ministry they provide for us. So next Sunday, beginning next Sunday, and for the next three Sundays, you will be hearing more from them via video. And uh, you'll be able to hear some of their testimony and how the Lord's using them and things of that nature. And so uh, each Sunday over the next three Sundays, you'll hear from one of those, those men. Uh, grab your Bible and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Find your place there and then go all the way to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and put a finger there. All right? Uh, we're going to continue in our summer series uh, just Working through the church, like the title of the series is In the Church. We're looking at uh, the roles, the responsibilities, this the function of the church. We've talked about mission, membership, we've talked about attendance, we've talked about discipline, and something else that I can't think of, but now we're coming to authority. Yeah, 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 authority. I was purposely trying to put that one aside since that was last week. Uh, authority, and now we come to the sixth message in this series, six of nine, and we're going to talk about women in the church. And uh, I think this is going to be encouraging to us. I think this is going to be enlightening to us, and uh, definitely it's one of those areas of controversy today and the culture in which we live, but I think today is going to be good. A couple months ago, back in June, as the Southern Baptist Convention, which we are a part of, was preparing to convene for its annual meeting down in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, the major news headlines said nothing about the 92 missionaries that the IMB would commission for the field during that week. Uh, said nothing uh, about North American Mission Board's 
church replant initiative, which is a, a strategy to come alongside uh, local associations and state conventions and even local churches and, and uh, work together to replant churches within old church facilities to preserve the gospel presence within local communities. The headline said nothing uh, about the celebration that we should be having for the 10,000 churches, SBC churches that have been planted since 2010. Instead, what I saw was all the major headlines revolving around one issue, women in the church. You see, back in June, as we were convening and ramping up to the annual meeting there in New Orleans... The subject of women in the church was of interest largely because of some action that our executive committee, which kind of runs the denomination or the convention of churches throughout the year, the, all the other days other than those two days we're in session together. But the executive committee, by way of the uh, um, credentials committee, had disfellowshipped two churches. They had looked at these churches and deemed them to not be in friendly cooperation with the convention. Largely because these two churches had changed in their doctrinal belief and practice and were um, ordaining and putting women in the position of pastoral leadership. The two churches, one was Saddleback Church there in Lake Forest, California. One of, if not the largest church in the SBC at the time, was this fellowship. Saddleback, which was founded and pastored for many years by Rick Warren, uh, began ordaining women a, a number of years ago and putting them in positions of leadership such as campus pastors. They even, with their new pastor, took the step to recognize his wife as one of the pastors of the church. The second church that was disfellowshipped by the executive committee uh, was... Fern Creek Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Its senior pastor had been on the pastoral staff team there at Fern Creek for over 40 years. She had been the senior pastor for over 30 at this point. And so that's a lot of water under the bridge. So clearly knew where this church stood on the issue of women's roles in the church. And so both of these churches were disfellowshipped because of the positions they had taken on the role of women within the church. The media and church leaders across denominations were interested in this because of its controversial nature. They saw, they deemed the SBC's action to be highly controversial, and so they were clued in and paying, paying attention. Uh, the reality is, is the modern cultural blurring of gender roles throughout our society, which has obviously bled over into the church, for us, it forces us, while we're doing what we're doing today, it forces us to investigate what does the Bible say about the role of women in the life of the church? What positions can and can they not hold in the life of the church? And so this morning, as we're going to take the next step in this sermon series, this is what we're going to address, that being women in the church. Now, as a local church as a, and as a Southern Baptist church, I want you to know we affirm the Bible's teaching on gender. What is that? Male and female. You see, God created humanity in his own image. He created them in his own likeness. And Genesis 1, as we're going to read in just a moment, tells us he created them male and female. 
Humanity in that is the crowning work, the apex of his creation. So as we look at this, we see the gift of gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. And as such, women in the church, this is on your bulletin there, women in the church are esteemed image bearers of God. Women are essential members of the church. Women are extraordinary servants of God as well. And they should fill every role imaginable in the life of the church with one exception. The office of the pastor, elder. You see, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the Bible tells us that the office of pastor is to be limited to men and only to men as qualified there in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. With that said, I believe it's important to mention how there is nothing inherently uh, good or, or, or a leg up in ability that would make a man better at putting an argument together. There's nothing inherent within men that would make them better at exegeting a text and, and delivering that to the congregation. Communication is good on both genders. In fact, the truth is women are excellent in all of these things and probably could outdo me in some areas. <laughs> so why, why would we say that women in the church can and should fill every role except for that of the pastor? Think about that question this morning. That's what we're going to wrestle with. Why, why would we make that definitive statement and take that definitive position as a church? That's the question I want to answer this morning. So as we begin, you need to understand that the argument that we're making today has nothing to do with ability. It has everything to do with authority and the design that we find in creation. That's where we're going today. So as we talk about women's role in the church, and we're going to talk about men as well, we're not talking about ability. We all can do these things, right? We all can do these things. We all have the ability to communicate and, and to look at Scripture and, and to outline it and deliver it. We all can do those things. We should be able to do, do those things. So it's more about authority and that being found in how God has designed his creation. And for that, let's take a step further. As a Bible people, we must, in all matters, view life and matters of life through the lens of Scripture and never through the lens of culture or preference. Amen. We must also remember that God alone, think about this, possesses the authority to order and to design his creation, to design the family, to design the church as he wants, and it's our duty to submit under that and to live by it, Amen. right? So what I'm saying today will be controversial to some in our community. It might be controversial to some of y'all, but what I'm saying this morning in every way possible is what the Word of God teaches. I've done everything I can to make sure that what we're seeing here, what we're espousing here, is none other than the teaching of the Word of God, the doctrine that we should be holding. So, some people might today argue this perspective is archaic, it's misogynistic, it's chauvinistic. Because of our 
restrictiveness on women, I would simply argue it's biblical, and as such, it is good. While the Bible might restrict some things, I want you to know that in its totality, it is extremely liberating to women. All throughout the stories of Scripture, we read of women being used mightily for God. Think about Deborah in the book of Judges. Think about Rahab there. Think about Ruth. Think about Mary. All women in the Bible that if it wasn't for them, God's people would have not been able to take the next step. I mean, Rahab is the one, the prostitute, the, the, the Gentile prostitute who hides the two spies there in Jericho. And she's a part of the history of God's people. And so, with all of that said, we do come to certain passages within the Bible that are a little bit more tricky and difficult to wrestle with, such is the case in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look with me. We're going to read two verses, beginning in verse 11. Paul says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, before you pull your tomatoes out and start throwing them at the stage, we're going to figure out what this all means as we walk through some things this morning. Because rhetoric like this will get a preacher in trouble. Rhetoric like, like this will get a preacher in the headlines. And yet, these are the words of the Bible, are they not? These are the very words of Paul that he's speaking to Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus. Therefore, we're to, do, we're to delineate from it that they are applicable to us today, 2,000 or so years later. So, how are we to understand these words? They do seem like a relic of a past age. But the Bible says of itself in Hebrews 4.12, what? That it's living and active. So what is said back then, which was true, is still true today. So how do we make sense of all of this? What I want you to understand about women in the church is that this whole discussion has, again, nothing to do with ability, but everything to do with authority as we see it in the design of God's creation. So let's investigate four areas on this matter this morning. First, I want us to, to look at the biblical uh, case for authority. In the beginning, the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. And then the Bible goes a step further and it tells us that he filled those heavens and the earth with creatures and those creatures displayed the glory of God. And the apex of that creation was humanity. It was Adam and Eve and the Bible tells us that they were made in God's image and in his likeness. So look with me and let's read Genesis 1 beginning in verse 26. Moses tells us, then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's a whole sermon series on gender right there that we don't have time to do. 
And God blessed them, verse 28, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, one of the very first things the Bible tells us about mankind is that he specified, God specified two genders. He created them male and female. In this gendering language, we discover one of the duties of humanity. You know, in the ancient world, it was common practice for kings to set up, to form and set up statues that would bear witness to the king, to the monarch. And they would do this so that they would keep in front of the people their reign, their authority, their, their power, right? Uh, case in point would be King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in Daniel 3 when he has that 90-foot statue of himself made out of gold and he tells everybody to worship and bow down to it, right? So this is what happened. As God is laying out here in, <clears throat> in Genesis 1, as we read through the creation account, what we see is, is God is commissioning the man and the woman, in verse 28, to fill the earth, to exercise dominion over the earth. In other words, they and their offspring would be nothing other than miniature statues reflecting the glory and the goodness of God, reflecting his character and pointing to someone who is higher and greater than himself, than themselves. So human beings were called to be royal stewards who ruled under an answer to the high king himself. This is the great duty of humanity. They're to be in the image and likeness of God, regents, stewards, rulers over this creation, male and female. We find further, a further example of Adam's rule over creation as we move to chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. There in those verses, we read that Adam named all the creatures that God had made. I've told you many times that one of the reasons I believe that God has, through his, his sovereignty, has placed that story within Scripture is to help us understand that Adam needed to go through a process of realizing that he still lacked something. He needed someone in his life. The deer had a partner, the fish, I guess, had a partner, and, and the ants had partners. But he himself, as he's naming these animals, realized that in this good creation, something was still not good. He needed a helpmate. He needed Eve. Another reason that that has been included, that story's been included in the Word of God for us, is to help us understand that as humanity, as a, a man, as a creature of God... <clears throat> Was that, uh, I lost my place here. How about that? I need to get some new glasses. Um, was to realize the authority structure within this creation. That's the whole point of what I'm talking about here. See, Adam names the animals, but what else did he do? Sur first surgeries ever performed. He, the anesthesia comes in, he's placed down, and God does some surgical things. He takes a rib from him, and from this rib, what does he create? He creates Eve. And Eve comes to him, and he's blown away by the beauty. He's blown away by this helpmate, this perfect person who's going to wonderfully identify with him, someone he can have relationship with and be in community with. And what does he do? He names her. Adam just named the Adams, or the Adams. He just named the animals in all creation. What does that speak of? His dominion over the 
animal life, the animal kingdom. You see, we got a dog a couple years ago, a year and a half ago. She came to us with no name. Does she have a name now? Yeah, we named her. I've got three daughters. They came with no names. Who gave them their names? We did. Why? Because we have dominion over our children. We have dominion over our pets. So God here in this, in this exercise of bringing the animals before Adam is giving him the opportunity to exercise dominion over this world that he's put him in charge of. As he brings his wife, is she equal to Adam? Absolutely, right? Made in the image and likeness of God. But still, there's a structure of authority that Adam has over the woman. So in no way should we discern from this naming of Eve that women are beneath men. In fact, in verses 26 and 27, right here in the first chapter, we see four times at least this idea, this concept of Eve being made in the image and the likeness of God. Move to verse 28, and we see this commission to have dominion. It's in the plural, meaning it's not just Adam that's given this, this dominion. It's Adam and Eve that's given dominion. And yet, Adam is the head over his wife. So there's equality between men and women, even as, that, even as there is a structure of authority within that relationship. So Adam was given the responsibility of holding, loving authority over his wife, which is seen in the naming of her. I've joked many times that when he saw her, the reason we call her, we call women, women, is because he said, whoa, man. I mean, that was just like, wow. Of course, they didn't speak English back then, but uh, uh, there is something beautiful in the name, though. Ish is the name, or the, the, the word for man, and he names her Isha. It comes out of the same root word. And so she is taken from man. So they are one and together. So right here in these early chapters of the Bible, we discover that God designed a beautiful framework of royal authority within his creation. And hopefully we can see this good and gracious gift as we flip the pages of our Bible. We can see it over and over again. And while we may see it, the problem is that we often don't view authority favorably. Why is that? Some of you, your natural default position is to push against authority. Right? That, that's just your natural default position. Why is that? It's because you've witnessed it done wrongly. And so we push against authority because we've seen it be bad and exercise in a bad manner. And yet authority is not inherently bad. If it was bad, it wouldn't have been said good on day six. Right? Read Genesis 1. That is a large 30,000 viewpoint of the six days of creation. You read Genesis 2, and that is a close, upfront, 300-foot viewpoint of day 6. And all of it, God is saying, good, 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 very good when it comes to the end. And so God's saying over authority, this whole structure, that it is good, very good. So it's an integral part of God's created order. That's the biblical case for authority. Let's quickly move on to the diabolical war against authority. So we're working through Genesis 1. We work through Genesis 2. It ends with everything being good in God's created order. And yet it's not long until the war is being waged against 
God and his authority. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was of delight to the eyes and that the tree was, a, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So we got this war that's taking place. The serpent here is pointing out the one tree that was off limits to Adam and Eve. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever just read through Genesis and you get to this place, you walk through chapter 2, you get to Genesis 3, and, and you just begin to imagine what Eden would have looked like. Beautiful and lush. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine a garden where there's not some sort of death there, right? You know, something that's it's, it's, it's sprouted a, a fruit and it's, it, it's ripened and then it's turning to the opposite side. It begins to rot on the vine or begins to rot on the limb. And so it's hard for us to imagine. But in Eden, that would have never happened. There was no concept of death, concept of death at this point. So everything bore fruit and everything stayed ripe. Lush, wonderful, the best fruit you could ever imagine. I remember the first time I flew to Uganda several years ago. Uh, we went to this orphanage way out in the middle of the bush, and uh, they brought their best to us, and they brought fresh, picked pineapple off the vine. You know the stuff we get here in America in the, in the stores? Uh, you know what I'm talking about, Jordan. The stuff we buy in the stores here is okay. You know, it's okay. But it's picked green, shipped to us so it doesn't rot on the, on the boat or on the plane. But when you pick it right off the vine, man, it's like sucking on pure sugar. Oh, goodness gracious. It'll change your life change your life. That's what the Garden of Eden would have been like. They'd never known death. We look at all of that. It's hard for us to imagine. But for me, sometimes I'm thinking about it. I'm like, you had everything, but you fixated on the one thing that was off limits. The serpent comes along. He's crafty. The enemy, Satan, and he begins to push on that. He begins to question God's goodness. He begins to direct this question to Eve, and he doesn't direct it to Adam. Now, some thought theologians, I would say, wrongly make some assumptions here. And they would say that the reason the serpent attacked Eve rather than Adam is because maybe it was easier target. Like she was an easier prey. Or maybe they thought, well, she would be easier to get a hold of, and, and then we can use her as the seductress to, to trip up Adam. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the reason that the enemy attacks Eve rather than Adam first is because he's attacking the authority structure. So there's this diabolical, this demonic uh, war against the structure of authority that God has instituted within his own creation. So he deceives the woman who then deceives the man and the man rebels against God. But you take it even a step further. And what you see is the enemy comes not in a, 
you know, a beautiful elk that walks up and begins to talk all majestically. He, he doesn't fly in as an eagle and sit there on a perch and begin to speak with Eve. No, he comes in as the lowliest of creatures to deceive the woman who deceives the man who rebels against God and everything falls apart. The authority of creation crumbles because of this plan, because of this diabolical, demonic war against God and his structure of authority. Let's move a step further in our investigation. Let's talk about the results of rebellion. We move on through chapter seven or chapter three into verse seven and uh, go through verse 19. And what we see is the fallout of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel. And that's exactly what they did. They rebelled against God. Sin is rebellion. And rebellion is always met with God's just judgment. Moses tells us here in his record that God cursed the serpent. But he didn't just curse the serpent. He cursed Eve and he cursed Adam. He even cursed all of creation because of this rebellious decision. Sin had brought depravity into every facet of their lives. So according to verse 16, the woman's desire would now be for her husband. That sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? You know, I'm doing premarital counseling with people or maybe even uh, counseling with married people who've been married a while. I'm always trying to help them understand that you need to have a desire for the other one, right? If there's no desire for the other one, we got serious issues. You can't reconcile. You can't get along. You're, you're not going to do anything that you need to do as a married couple if there's not desire there. So we might read this in Genesis 3 and say, well, that's a good thing. At least that hadn't fallen apart. Move to chapter 4 and verse 7, and as God is speaking to Cain about his sin, he says it's crouching at the door, it's desires to master you, but you must rule over it. So we pull back and we say, well, this desire can't be good that he speaks of in Genesis 3.16. So what we see is that Eve's desire, the woman's desire, would not be to submit under the loving leadership of the man, but instead, sin's depravity would lead her to desire to rule over him, to dominate him, and to destroy him. And this is what's going to happen to the man. See, he was passive on the front end because he should have been shepherding and protecting his wife because God had spoken to him about the commandment. He was passive then Look what he says in verse 16. He says, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So sin's depravity leads men to either be one of two things, passive or violent. Abdicate responsibility or domineer in their leadership. That's what happens in the home. That's what happens, can happen in the church. That's what happens in society. So now because of sin, you've got this jockeying for position within the genders. Happens in marriages. Why do people fight? Why do husband and wives fight? It's because you're pushing against one another. I want it my way. No, I want it my way. And you come to a cataclysmic inability to pass. part of the results of this rebellion. And so sin's depravity here has shattered Adam's just and good rule. He was to be God's regent, God's steward that would, that would 
reflect the goodness and the justness of God. Now that is broken within him. And so he's going to be domineering or he's going to be passive and be walked over by the woman while she is pursuing to be at the lead. See all this? I think this is exactly what we struggle with today in every aspect of life. It doesn't matter if it's the home, it's the workplace, or society in general. Women labor to usurp the authority of men, and in response to that, men are going to be passive or men are going to be domineering. And so our struggle as God's people who would seek to know and follow God's word is to fight against this natural disposition and to understand as a man, as a Christian man who wants to believe and live the word of God, that I must not be passive, nor should I be domineering. But I should lovingly lead my wife and my family. And as a man in the church, for me as an elder in the church, I must not ever be passive. I must not ever be domineering. But I must be a loving shepherd. Right? And for a Christian woman. Understanding the the effects and the results of the rebellion that's happened in our lives. You must not try to usurp the authority structure that God has placed. Anytime we get outside of the borders that God has laid out, what happens? Pain, sorrow, and destruction. You see, Adam and Eve, they looked at the garden. They said, man, we can eat from that tree and that tree and that tree and that vine. Those pineapples are, man, they're good. Uh, This is wonderful, but I really want that one over there. And what happens in the life of the church, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but what happens in the life of the church is that at times we can look around and say, man, I, I, put it in the context of women because that's what we're talking about this morning. I can do all of these things, but God has said not that one thing, but that's what you want. Crossing the border will always get you in trouble. It'll destroy a church, a family, a home, a nation. So our struggle must be to fight against this natural disposition in our lives. This brings us to a fourth area, and I'm going to lay out some implications. The, the implications of a reconstructed authority. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's try to bring all of this together. Those verses that we read earlier there in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12... We see that Paul instructed the women in the church to be quiet. How would that feel this morning as we read that? Women ought to be quiet. I like hearing you all sing this morning. I like talking to you in the halls. I like hearing you amen. I even like some of these sarcastic people who say they could preach better than I do that are women. (laughs) Sitting right over here is one I heard primarily. (laughs) I think her name's Melissa. So as we read those verses, we've got to understand the context. What is Paul writing to? He's writing a letter to Timothy. who's passionate of church, so he's writing to address specific issues within the church, right? So every time you're reading a letter in the New Testament, keep that in mind. What's the context of why he's addressing this church or this individual? Now, read through the letter. You see that there are clearly some 
false teachers that have a presence that are teaching some false things. And it's affecting the church, threatening to bring it down. Now, we don't know the specifics, but it does seem that it landed in a couple areas. You have extreme asceticism, like we're going to pull back from everything. We're just going to sit around and, and hum and, and, and talk about and think about how holy we can be. And it's the other side, extreme licentiousness. We're going to just kind of live and do anything we want to. Pleasure is the name of the game, that sort of thing. And, and then you've also got some uh, a teaching there where they're calling believers to abdicate, to walk away from earthly roles, earthly responsibilities, calling them to deny government authorities, which would be against what we see in Romans, uh, calling them to reject particular roles and responsibilities of the genders, men and women. That's what's happening here, and that's what he's addressing now, as we look specifically at chapter 2, we see early on, Paul has addressed all believers. He's speaking to men and women. Then he transitions in verse 8, and he speaks to men. He says, men, right? I desire, desire that men in every place should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Verse 11, he changes, and he begins to speak to women. This discussion or this conversation with both genders, I believe, is rooted in what we looked at in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You see, I believe Paul saw the sin in the Ephesian church as the fallout of the sin in Genesis 3. It's the result of the rebellion. You've got men who are passive or domineering, and you've got women who are stepping outside the borders that God has laid out in his authoritative structure. Verse 8, he tells the men, as we read, to lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is a continuation of the prayer emphasis in the first seven verses, but it highlights, in addition, this reality that, obviously, as these men gathered in prayer meetings, it was more like a fist fight. Right? Can you imagine going to a prayer meeting and, and it turns into anger and fights? Now, I can understand a business meeting, but man, we're praying here. But apparently that's what's happening. These men were domineering. They were angry. In addition to that, the women that he addresses, he's calling them to remember their role within God's structure. And so it seems that these, or at least some Ephesian women, sought to overturn the authority in the church by taking on leadership, the, the leadership role of teaching. He says in verse 12, he uses the phrase teacher to exercise authority over man. I would argue that this phrase is speaking to the office of the elder, speaking to the office of the pastor. How do we know that? Because if you go to chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, you see examples of when he uses this com combined language, it's referring to the office of elder. So you've got, men in the, or you've got women in the church who are saying, I'm a woman, and sure, Timothy... You and the other men are preachers and teachers, and you're doing a good job, but I can do it just as well, maybe better than you. And I'm going to step in to that space. And Paul says, I want women to be quiet and submissive and to learn in quietness within the church. He's addressing the authority structure within the church. So in doing so, Paul is not forbidding women to speak or to never teach. But instead, what he's doing here is he's defining the borders for those things. How do we know that? It's because you read the other places of the New Testament and you see women in leadership position. Lydia, 
She opened her home to the church in Philippi. She had a leadership position. She was the host, right? We're going to Lydia's house because the church is gathering. Priscilla pulled Apollos aside, her and her husband, and instructed him further in the faith. I think you can make a a strong case from Phoebe in Romans chapter 16 that she carried the office or she operated in the function of a deacon serving a church, which means she probably had others who served with her or under her. So you got women in leadership positions. So Paul cannot be saying that women should never open their mouth and just need to shut down and shut up. That's not what he's saying. And yet the culture today and the influence of feminism would say that's what the Bible's teaching. But that's not what the Bible's teaching. Jesus celebrated women. The early church celebrated women. And they did all kinds of wonderful things. But there's one thing that's not for women in the church. And that's the office of pastor. It's just like that tree. Man, you can eat from all of these trees. Eat from all of the vines. Look at that corn growing on the stalk. It doesn't even make you fat. And they wanted that other tree. Paul's command here in verse 12 for the women to be quiet. It's the same root word that we see in verse 2. And so he there he calls them to be to, to, to lead a peaceful and quiet life. And so I, I think it's clear that we can derive from this that Christians ought to lead a peaceful and quiet life. And rather than rebelling against God's established order in the church, just rest in it. Why? Because it's good for you. And it's good for me. Paul's making the point that this authority structure was established in the created order, verse 13, and then it was attacked by the serpent through the woman in verse 14. And so the things that we're dealing with today, the struggles that we're having, it's because the system's been broken, but we need to make sure that we're fighting to live within those borders that he's laid out. And so men, man, you must not dominate, nor must you be passive. And women, you must not seek to usurp certain authority structures that God in his word has laid out. Three implications of this for us right here at Red Lane. Number one, the office and function of elders reserved for men. This means that the preaching, teaching ministry during the worship gatherings of the church are administered solely by men who are elders or invited by the elders. This morning, what you saw here on this platform as we gathered for worship was both men and women. Right? You got women in the choir, women on, uh, on the front singing with mics in their hands. We had Miss Jewel, precious Miss Jewel, that came and prayed. We're not talking about that stuff. We're talking about the authoritative, doctrinal teaching of God's word when the church gathers. The Bible says that is the place for men and only men. Everywhere else, have at it. Right? And so for us, we wholeheartedly agree and affirm that the office and the function of elders reserve for men. Because when the preacher stands and he says, he is saying, this is what the Bible says, in essence, stating the church's doctrinal position on the matter. On the flip side, if a lady in the spirit of Priscilla who pulls Apollos aside and instructs him further in the faith, a woman who goes to a man and seeks to instruct him in the faith on her own is free and 
celebrated to do so because she, in essence, is saying, this is what I believe the Bible says. It's not a doctrinal position of the church. It's not a part of that authoritative structure, but it's one sister speaking to a brother, and that is good and celebrated. Second implication. The teaching role of small group leaders where men are present must be reserved for men. Why is that? It's because for us, small group leaders serve as an extension of the pastoral preaching ministry. The teaching material is selected. It's approved by our elders and pastors on the staff. Therefore, it carries the weight of authoritative doctrine. And for that reason, following creation's order, only men should teach and lead men's groups or co-ed groups. And so, does that mean we don't have women small group leaders? No, we have women small group leaders who teach adult women. And we have women small group leaders who lead in our kids' ministry. But when it comes to adults, and there's a co-ed class, and we have a number of those, we will always have men, usually with their wives, who are shepherding that small group. But that man is teaching. Why? Because it's an extension of this ministry right here at this pulpit. Does that make sense? It's authoritative. It's doctrinal in its nature. Same would be true of our life development classes in a co-ed situation because that material is flowing out of our doctrinal positions as a church. It's going to be taught and led by men. Number three, women are free and encouraged to use their giftedness and passions to serve the Lord in his church in all other areas of ministry. So women can and women should serve with children, with women, hospitality and evangelism, serve on mission trips, serve in worship, serve in media, and anywhere and everywhere else you can find a place to serve using your gifts, using your passion, using your abilities. Do it for the glory of God in the church. We believe that women in the church, listen, are esteemed image bearers of God, made in the likeness and the image of God, right there with men. We believe women are essential members of the church. We believe that women are extraordinary servants who should fill all of the roles with the exception of that one, the office of the pastor. Where would we be without the church? Where would we be in the church without women? So hear me this morning. Man, as I say all this, I'm thinking, where, are the, where is it landing? I can't tell on some of y'all's faces. Some of you are smiling. Some of you are not. But you know, maybe my introvertedness and my um, self-esteem is a little low this morning. But we're not in any way saying there's a difference of value or equality with women. No, Genesis 1 makes it clear. Equal value, equal everything when it comes to worth and abilities and all of that but when it comes to authority structure there is a clear defined authoritative structure in the home and in the church because it is in creation and in the church the authority is reserved to the office of the pastor and so ladies I want you to know this morning while many might argue about the unfairness of what I have espoused this morning called the complementarian viewpoint. And they would stress the fairness and the inclusion of the egalitarian perspective. Our responsibility and our duty as Christians is to know and obey the Bible. The media and many church leaders throughout America were tuned in to the debate that took place there on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting earlier this summer. They wanted to know where the convention of churches would land on this doctrinal issue. And I have good news this morning. We landed on the side of Scripture. 
for me and our churches, I voted, and Steve was there and voted, and my wife was there and voted. As we stood there and voted on behalf of our congregation, we were standing on the side of Scripture. We were standing on the promised safety and the blessing that comes when we stay within the borders God has defined. And we were standing for a reconstructed order brought about through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ladies, I want you to know we celebrate the life of Christ in you. We celebrate his gifts he's given you. And we celebrate the passion that he's given you. And we celebrate the intentionality that he gives you. And we celebrate the gentleness and the nurturing aspect of who you are and how you're wired that he gives you. We celebrate today the strength that God has given you. Again, where would the church be without women? While we celebrate that gift and the abilities that you have and that you are, we also refuse to transgress the borders set out for the church's office of elder. It alone is reserved for men. All else is for women. Man, take up that flag and run with it. Amen? Run with it. And as men, we need to champion that for them. Here's how you champion it. You guys aren't listening fast enough again today. Here's how you champion it, men. Don't be passive. You see, a lot of, here's where I'm going to nitpick a little bit. There's a lot of passive men in the church today. I'm saying church universal, church general. There's a lot of passive men in the church red lane. Don't be passive. Pastor, what do you mean about not being passive in the church? Well, who's shepherding your own family? Is your wife shepherding your family? Is your wife pushing you to spiritual things? Is your wife saying, honey, it's Sunday morning. Are we going to go to church? Is, is that what's happening? If, if that is, you're the passive one. If your wife is the one who serves in the congregation and she's involved in all of these things and you just kind of attend occasionally or attend at your own convenience, who's the passive one? You are. God would not have you to be passive. At the same time, God forbid that you'd be domineering. God forbid that you would ever be dumb. I was hanging out with a guy yesterday who used to be a part of our church years ago, and, and he was telling me about some, some finance meetings because he was on the finance committee and the, the debates that were back and forth. I'm like, man, I'm so glad we don't have those anymore, right? We don't have that kind of uh, debates, a good, good, friendly way to put it. We don't have those things anymore. But what was happening in those meetings probably was this domineering, I want it my way. We can't have that, nor can we have the other. So men, be leaders. Lovingly lead your wives. Lovingly lead your kids. Lovingly step in and fulfill your role and responsibility as a male in this church by leading. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, you are good. And one of the ways that we see your goodness is through the structure that you've laid out in your word for us. God, I'm so grateful that as a church, as a local church, we're not left to figure things out on our own. We're, we're not left to, to do as those people in the book of Judges did, that they did what was right in their own eyes. No, God, you have clearly laid out in your word the role of male and female in the church, in the home, and that bleeds over into society. And I thank you for that. I pray that we as a church would celebrate 
the borders that you've laid out, the structure that you've set up, and we would be satisfied to live within those borders because in that border and in that territory is safety and blessing. Help us to do that. We live in a culture today that wants to push the, the boundaries in every facet of life. And Lord, we get influenced by that. And we begin to look at things within the spiritual realm and the things within the Christian life that we're trying to live. And we begin to look at those through the lens of culture and, and the, the, uh, the attack that's there rather than looking at culture through the lens of Scripture. In this matter that we're talking about this morning, help us to look at it through the grid of your holy word. It's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant. And as such, we trust it with our very lives. We move into a time of response this morning. May we respond with faith today to the structure you've laid out for your church. God, may it spur us on in our zeal for you. God, as I've challenged the men in this room today, the message has been toward women, but it's been to all of us, and I've, I've challenged the men to not continue to live in passivity, but to step in to their God-ordained role in their home and in the church. And with that, Father, we pray for women to allow the men to step into those spaces. Sometimes that may mean that there's a vacancy in the life of our church. And they were held back a little bit because no one's willing or able to, to serve in that space. But sometimes it's a man that needs to run there and not a woman. So, Lord, help us in that endeavor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand to We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.